0: Beyond Coronavirus, Vaccination and the COVID-19 Pandemic An event first broadcast live online on 14th January 2021 with Professor Sheena McCormack of the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL and Clinical Project Lead for the COVAC Trials and Dr Mark Fleer, Reader-in-Law at Queen's University Belfast with a discussion chaired by Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal Public Policy Forum Introduced by Professor Ian Greer, President and Vice Chancellor of Queen's University Belfast, and with a conclusion from Professor Stuart Elborn. Thank you for joining us at this virtual event as we discuss beyond coronavirus, vaccination, and the COVID 19 pandemic. I'm sure that in January 2020, none of us could have imagined or predicted the sustained global impact of the COVID 19 pandemic. The entire UK higher education sector has navigated many challenges in dealing with the impact of the pandemic. At Queen's, our students and our staff have responded with considerable resilience and agility. We've adopted new ways of learning and working and our researchers are continuing their part in global efforts to understand and to treat COVID-19. I believe that the pandemic has demonstrated the important role universities play in our society. And how institutions across the world can work in partnership, not only with each other, but with industry, with NGOs and with government to tackle global challenges. Indeed, the important research and education undertaken at universities has shaped and informed the global response to the pandemic. Nowhere is this more evident, perhaps, than with the development of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, as countries worldwide now look to extensive vaccination programmes to combat the virus. Today's event is therefore very timely. At Queen's, we're committed to facilitating debate and discussion on key issues impacting society. So I'm looking forward to our discussions today around vaccination and the COVID-19 pandemic. As our keynote speaker, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sheena McCormack, Clinical Epidemiologist at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit, UCL. Professor McCormack's research focus is the development and implementation of biomedical interventions to prevent or reduce the risk of acquiring HIV. Since 1994, she's worked on early phase HIV vaccine trials in Europe and Africa. I look forward to hearing her experience and her views as we discuss vaccination and the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Mark Fleer, reader in the School of Law here at Queens will respond to Professor McCormack. Mark is an expert in the law and ethics of pandemic preparedness, planning and response. Finally, I'm delighted that Anne Watt will then lead us in our Q&A session and I would encourage you to submit questions to our speakers via the Q&A function. Anne is Director of Pivotal, Northern Ireland's public policy forum, which focuses on evidence based ideas and policies to improve society, economy and public services. I know that you'll find this event highly informative. At Queen's, we're planning further events, providing opportunities for evidence-based debate and discussion around the global response to the pandemic. Without further delay, I'd now like to hand over to Professor Sheena McCormack.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Vice-Chancellor, for that introduction and for the invitation to come and speak. Uh, at this, uh, uh, event, uh, it was, I have to say, uh, a challenge, uh, to, um, a challenge, and we're going to the first slide, a challenge to, uh, prepare this talk, um, but a challenge, uh, I welcome. So, uh, it'll be a little glimpse into beyond coronavirus, but a focus on vaccination and the COVID-19 pandemic. And as the Vice-Chancellor said, it's been an extraordinary global effort in the research uh, sector uh, to, uh, to get us to where we are today. So, I'd like to speak about the journey, how we got here, uh, a little bit about what the trial data tell us, um, and then end really thinking uh, risks, benefits, Uh, and focusing on any gaps that could be critical. So by here, uh, I mean MHRA uh, authorizing, and the first uh, national authority to to do this, the BioNTech Pfizer uh, received its emergency use authorization uh, in December. Followed later that month by uh, Oxford AstraZeneca's effort for their COVID-19 vaccine, And now we're in the midst of the most amazing rollout uh, of a national vaccination campaign across the four nations. Quite extraordinary. But it's not without its concerns amongst the public. Um, And here, under the prime minister's tweet that followed the release of the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, emergency youth authorization. Uh, a concern uh, expressed by Mark B. So the MPs and their families uh, will be happy to have the vaccine first. So people have always been concerned about safety uh, and uh, no exception as the regulatory authorities and the health services. So how we got there, this is the most amazing R&D pipeline I can imagine. 60 vaccines uh, in clinical development already and 172 sitting there in preclinical development. That is a phenomenal uh, number of candidates. And when I look down this list, which uh, might be a little bit small for you, uh, I hope not, I see at the top of it protein subunits. There are 18 of those candidates being looked at. There's a long history of of, uh, protein subunit vaccines going back many, many years a fantastic uh, database across this particular platform uh, of safety. You'll be familiar with hepatitis B vaccine, um, for example. And then the viral vectors, uh, also quite a long history in, in this space some on replicating ones. DNA vaccines, a little bit more recent and doing very well in the cancer space, particularly. Inactivated uh, virus vaccines, and then RNA vaccines. These are new. Um, we are seeing now the first authorizations for this uh, platform. So, what lies behind the infrastructure behind all of these individual programs that are, uh, are sponsored uh, by legal entities? There are uh, is a host of not-for-profit uh, organizations. Um, And the Brighton collaboration followed on uh, from a meeting in Brighton, uh, no surprise there. Um, And they uh, absolutely are committed to looking uh, at the safety of vaccines uh, through rigorous um, science. So they teamed up with CEPI. Um, CEPI is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, um, set up uh, really uh, on the back of uh, SARS-CoV-1, I guess, and, and a pandemic concern. And they work together to create SPEAK, the safety platform for emergency vaccines. And how this operates, each individual trial is is looked at by independent committees, Uh, a data safety monitoring board, some uh, people call it an independent data monitoring committee, whatever those names are, that committee is completely uh, independent. But it's only looking at data from that particular trial. And what Speak does is provide an expert uh, to attend the, uh, those uh, meetings and review those data so they have an opportunity to look across the whole platform, whether that's protein subunits or um, uh, RNA uh, vaccines. Another organization uh, I wanted to draw attention to is the COVAX uh, organization. This has got three pillars related to access, and the COVAX pillar is focused on the access to vaccines. It's the only truly global solution to the pandemic, because it is an effort that's trying to ensure all peoples in the corner of the world, every corner of the world will get access to these vaccines once they're available, regardless of their wealth. And their aim, an ambitious aim, is to deliver two billion doses by the end of this year. And then Operation Warp Speed, this is a a US uh, coalition. The Department of Defense in the States have a long history of uh, vaccine research and deployment of uh, licensed vaccines. The Department of Health, and they've come together in Operation Warp Speed, very focused on the vaccine distribution process, um, as well as the research. Their goal is to deliver 300 million doses uh, during this year. And they are leveraging existing networks, not least of all the the people I work with uh, in HIV uh, vaccines, processes, and partnerships that already exist between pharma uh, and academia. And then our own UK Vaccine Task Force, 357 million doses purchased. It's absolutely amazing. Number one objective to secure access and how well they have done. 40 million doses of the BioNTech Pfizer, 100 million of Oxford AstraZeneca's and 7 million of Moderna's. So, put together enough to vaccinate the UK population. But as you will see, uh, 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 many more that they've purchased with the objective of providing for international distribution. Because we all know we can only really get back to normal as it was before um, if the world uh, is protected. So they also have uh, an objective to establish a long-term strategy for the future. This is particularly um, in the area of design and manufacturing, and they're well on their way uh, to achieving that. So I thought it it might be interesting. This isn't an area of my expertise, but I thought you might be interested to see uh, the cost of development and who paid for it. I know I was interested to see this piece um, from BBC. Um, Who's funded it? So each of those squares is £100 million, and the blue squares are government. So if we look at AstraZeneca, you will see the investment. I think it's largely been uh, UK, but not just the UK government have put in. Uh, an investment from not for profit, that would be organizations such as uh, as Gates and uh, and CEPI. Um and then the private investment uh, that is coming uh, from, from pharma itself, uh, which is by far and away outweighs the other investors for that product. And then you look across the piece. So the top three, the first three that we have an authorization for um, within the UK, the Pfizer and Moderna uh, are fairly different pictures. But across the whole uh, diagram, the major investor and therefore in the space of clinical development, the party that's taking the greatest financial risks um, is pharma. But there's substantial government support in here. So now, if we think about who benefits, and again, for this is taken from UNICEF, but I found it on the BBC, um, vaccine makers are charging uh, different prices. Here we've got the prices in in dollars, not in pounds, um, and a range of them, and, and that's very acceptable because pharma charges different prices according to country income. But you get a sense of the cost of manufacturing distribution, it's almost always, I think, and it's logical, going to be more expensive for new um, uh, new platform vaccines. Um, the Oxford AstraZeneca one there is sitting there at 4 to $8 in that diagram. And pharma, of course, uh, will stand to make some profit from this potentially from high-income countries. Governments, of course, will benefit by being able to kickstart their economy. Um, and I imagine and presume that uh, pension funds in benefit because Pharma is a, a big space for investment uh, of pension funds. So that's a little glimpse into how we got here. Um, and now a short, a short look at the trial, uh, what the trial data uh, show us. So early trials, uh, you know, we talk about the phase one, two, three, and I know Mark will speak about this, but in the COVID-19 pandemic we've really divided it almost into two. So the early trials, which is almost like phase one and two combined, are focusing on immune responses when they're trying to measure the likely effectiveness of their candidate. The binding antibody assays are robust, but I can tell you they're not easy to compare uh, across uh, across the papers, but they're certainly quite an easy assay to perform in the lab. The neutralizing antibodies, are more difficult, there's much greater biological variability in those assays, and then it becomes even harder to compare them uh, across the published uh, papers. And I would say that's similar for cellular responses. But this is what people are looking at in the early trial when they're looking for a sign of efficacy. Whereas once you move to the late stage five, the t- typically the phase three, it's the clinical outcomes that become so critical and all the COVID-19 vaccine trials have focused on disease. They may have measured it (coughs) in a different way, but the focus here is disease, particularly severe disease, of course, and and ultimately uh, mortality. Infection has been assessed. In in some cases, it's only in a subset of of trials. So this is looking for the asymptomatic infections as well as those that are um, uh, uh, causing disease. And at whatever stage of trial you are, you're going to be looking and reporting uh, safety uh, very closely uh, in the first stages. And as time goes on and you begin to characterize the vaccine, um, then uh, perhaps less frequently. So I'd like to draw from a a COVAX, one of the workshops that COVAX organized uh, back in December, Um, And uh, and this provides us some glimpse into when the clinical efficacy trials that have been uh, reported already will analyze the immune responses in people who receive the vaccine. And then they'll look carefully for differences between those who did and did not have symptomatic uh, disease, or if they measured all infections, including asymptomatic, they'll look at that too. And the aim of that is to determine something we call the correlates of protection. And what you hope is to identify an immune threshold that tells you who is a responder, who is not a responder, and identifies the time in that individual's life when they're going to need a booster. And an example of this in widespread clinical use that we use in the clinic uh, I work in is the hepatitis B vaccine. If the surface antibody is less than 10, then we will administer uh, a boost dose. So this red circle here um, in, uh, can I show you that, that here, um, shows you when uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna and Oxford hope to report the correlates of immunity. And that's all in this quarter of 2021. And that will very much influence the design of trials in future because they will have a target uh, we hope uh, to aim for. And it will also influence very strongly the national vaccine programs and the plans for booster strategies uh, uh, going down the line in subsequent winters. So looking a little bit more closely about something that really intrigued me that was presented at this uh, workshop, um, in the inset here for the BioNTech Pfizer paper is the neutralizing antibodies. And the red arrow there is showing you uh, where they were um, at the time of the second uh, dose. So uh, early on here, um, at this stage here up through to day eight, there's really very little going on in terms of these neutralizing antibodies, the ones that we think are really important um, for providing protection. And yet in the trial, you see that the two curves, the rate of infections here going up in the placebo arm separates very clearly early on from those in the um, vaccine arm so early evidence uh, of protection here after the first dose um, at around about uh, day 12, I think it looks like 11 now on that graph, doesn't it? And in the Moderna, this is the other uh, uh, lipid nanoparticle modified RNA vaccine. We see a similar pattern, the insect graph showing low responses at day 15. And yet at day 15, those two curves separating with a much higher rate uh, of uh, infections in the placebo group compared to the RNA. So we wait to see what these uh, teams report and the uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca team too, um, but it looks as if uh, it could be that the onset of efficacy happens when the antibody response is low to modest. So looking across the piece, I wanted to share something that gives me enormous enthusiasm and confidence. uh, And that's on the bottom line here, the efficacy, all of these um, studies Uh, Well, certainly Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca and Lever, they all were looking um, at the same, to elicit the same immune response. And all of them have shown very high levels of protection. So this is exciting um, because uh, it gives you uh, reassurance in each of the individual trials um, when they're all seeing um, the same thing. Moving on to that very important and most important uh, aspect, safety. So reactions to vaccines are very, very well characterised. The local and systemic things that happen after a vaccine were experienced by the majority. Uh, I've put the graph there of the the, uh, BioNTech-Pfizer one, but it's a very similar picture for uh, Moderna and uh, Chadox uh, candidates as well. They tend to be in the first 48 hours um, after vaccination they are more frequent in younger cohorts um, because their immune responses are stronger. So, the interaction between the immune response and the person and the vaccine is stronger. They're more frequent after the second dose because there's been an element of priming of the response. And typically, it's pain, tenderness, maybe redness at the site of injection, uh, and a sort of flu like um, illness uh, in terms of systemic. But it is short lived. And interestingly, small as it is here, the second column in each of those pairs of columns is what's going on in the placebo group. So uh, even in the placebo group, and it was uh, it was a true placebo here in BioNTech uh, Pfizer, you're seeing uh, these responses. But what about the more serious responses? And shortly after the program rolled out, both here and in the U.S., um, there were cases of anaphylaxis uh, reported. And indeed, with the uh, the BioNTech Pfizer, and I, I suspect it may also be the case with the um, lipid nanoparticle, mRNA, Moderna vaccine, uh, anaphylaxis is definitely more frequent than it is uh, with other vaccines. Typically, we'd expect one in a million cases to have anaphylaxis, and it seems to be more like one in 100,000 <coughs> for these uh, products. Presents within minutes. It's completely treatable with a, a, an injection of epinephrine, adrenaline. It's not usual um, on first exposure, as you will know with um, you or you or friends of yours um, have uh, uh, have anaphylaxis to bees, wasps, and uh, etc. Um, so we do need to understand the mechanism here. Has there been some exposure, perhaps, to components of the vaccine? It's not going to be the immunogen, I don't think, but it could be the um, the lipid nanoparticle some components of that. We we need to understand what's going on, and I think this demonstrates the speed at which it was picked up and responded to, but actually the importance of ongoing safety surveillance. And I wanna recommend this uh, article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by Castells and Phillips. It's a really great read um, uh, to give context to all of this. So what do our regulators authorize a vaccine? They base that on the highest level of uh, evidence, so the placebo controlled, randomized controlled trials for the product. Um, the safety of the population they're responsible for is the most important criteria and for MHRA that's the UK population and then they look at the benefits uh, in the context of that population and it is granted very much on the basis of that post-authorization reporting that captures uh, the rare events that are not seen in the lar- even in the large trials. What about our Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunizations? So their recommendations are based on a broader level of evidence, also the highest level of RCTs, but cohort of mathematical modeling studies that have been conducted robustly. Um, and By that, I mean a clear reference group. They stuck to the analysis plan. It was a good plan. Um, surveillance data. And then expert opinion, which draws on the totality of experience from previous vaccines, previous epidemics, and the role that vaccination has had in controlling epidemics. So their recommendation was to have a 12 week boost. And this expert opinion drew on analysis of the efficacy uh, between day 15 and 21 in the Pfizer-BioNTech and um, from the CHADOX trial, which had some longer gaps, uh, some participants had longer gaps between their doses. A knowledge, an existing knowledge that longer gaps facilitate immune responses because it allows time to build up immune memory and the knowledge that natural infection provides uh, protection. So they've been watching how uh, the responses after natural infection uh, wane too. So they're looking at digging down into this BioNTech uh, candidate, the BNT162B2 and their trial. If you look, and I know you can't read it, that's the picture from the paper, but seven or more days after dose two, which was their primary analysis, there's a 95% uh, uh, is what they observe as the level of protection, the reduction in the rate uh, of uh, infection, Um, and the uh, 95% confidence interval, so the interval in which we believe that the truth kind of, uh, lies uh, shows that the lower bound's 90% so we then tend to translate that into saying that it's at least 90% uh, protective after dose one before dose two uh, that was only 52% that they observed and the lower bound's 30% so at this stage you can say at least 30% now <clears throat> out of uh, interest when the who uh, launched their vaccine blueprint in april of last year um, their target was at least 30% minimum, around that 95% confidence interval, and they were hoping for an observed es- estimate of, of efficacy of 50 to 60%. But JCVI, uh, with the help of PHE, focused on the cases that occur between day 15 and 21 because most of the failures of the vaccine happened early on in that trial. And there, the protection uh, is estimated to be 89% with a lower bound of the confidence interval, at least 52%. So, this was a strategic decision to achieve high coverage. And something I heard on the radio uh, the other day, which I thought explained this nicely you know, two grandparents as opposed to one. So, high coverage, both grandparents get a single dose, 89% protection, a minimum of 52%. If you go for the double dose, low coverage, only one grandparent gets the dose. 95% protection, 90% minimum. So better for that individual, uh, but at a population level, the high coverage is a really important goal. So uh, I think I'm coming now to the, to the last part. We're going to do a quick time check there. Uh, a word about risk uh, and age. So the um, under 50s, uh, in many ways, you could say get less benefit from the vaccine because they're far less likely to suffer from um, severe disease as an individual and actually because they've got stronger immune responses they're probably going to have more reactions to the vaccine. The benefit is clear if you're over 50 and that with every increasing dega- decade of age there's a staggering uh, increase in the risk of severe um, disease and because immune responses deteriorate with age they will have less reactions but without a doubt Everyone will benefit from returning towards normal. We cannot ignore the delays in cancer diagnostics, um, in in access to uh, um, life-saving surgery, even because there are no ITU beds uh, available. We all suffer as a society for the stress and strain um, on our health services and the restriction uh, in social uh, contact, which is really not good for anybody's mental health and well-being, um, uh, not least of all, of course, the impact on the economy. So, what are the risks as we look forward beyond where we are now? Well, um, waning immune responses. So, of course, this is a risk that um, JCVI examined very carefully, um, that immune responses could wane over those 12 weeks between the doses so that protection uh, drops very much to the to the lower end. This seems a little unlikely, as it doesn't happen after natural infection. And we know a lot of people who have natural infection actually don't make uh, antibody responses. People who had virus-positive infection didn't have necessarily detectable antibody responses. But we see very few cases of reinfection um, in those um, who could be naturally infected. And even this morning, I can't find this paper on uh, on the uh, preprint server, uh, but uh, here it is in the news. Uh, Susan Hopkins from PhD reporting a large cohort over six thousand healthcare workers. Uh, only forty four of them uh, appear to have been reinfected. And then the other risk, of course, the that we've heard a lot about the new variants, uh, its mutation and escape. So when does that happen? If the immune response is weak. Um, then the virus may mutate to escape. That could mean no or low protection from the vaccine. It's certainly possible um, in theory. But for this perfect storm to happen, you need viral replication and weak responses. And we know that happens in natural infection. And also the mutation rate, I think, and uh, there'll probably be more experts in in the audience than I am on this, but my understanding is the mutation rate for this virus is not that high. Um, compared to other viruses, say, for example, like Ebola, um, for which there are effective vaccines, which were designed on strains uh, uh, a decade or more ago. So the other uh, perhaps slightly more uh, practical risk to consider is the supply and delivery chain. Uh, The vaccine components, I think there's a little bit of a short supply of the lipids that are needed for the lipid nanoparticles. The capacity for each step in the manufacturing chain through to release. So that's the filling, the labelling, you know, the moving it from two from A to B, all of that uh, requires the freezers for storing, etc. And then the capacity and space to deliver the program in hospitals, GP surgeries, uh, or sports halls, whatever, all over the, the world. And then the, the, the little things, the glass files, the syringes, uh, the needles, the PPE, uh, all so critical to delivering this massive program. And so we can mitigate against those things. I think we've been doing it for for a while. Um, But there are other mitigations that will have to continue until we reach the necessary level of immunity in the population for control. And that's going to include the social measures. I'd be so interested in the discussion to hear what others think, but it feels to me that we're unlikely to be really free of this um, uh, before we hit the sort of season when the transmission for these types of viruses go down anyway, the, the kind of April and and beyond. So we need to monitor the cases, particularly among vaccine recipients, very carefully, uh, so the actual infections, um, the, the variants that might pop up there, um, but particularly hospital admissions and mortality to ensure we're still on track um, and that the immune responses, even if they don't prevent infection, uh, are not uh, still not uh, still able to prevent um, Uh, the more severe uh, disease. So I wanted to end, I've not really given you a glimpse beyond, but I wanted to share this feeling I have that we will get beyond, at least in terms of the dominance in the the news and media um, in this year. I think it is, in fairness, extremely unlikely we'll achieve eradication. You know, apart from smallpox, what else have we managed to do? It's pretty tricky. Some countries have managed to eradicate polio with with really good vaccine um, campaigns, but they have to remain vigilant. It still pops up from time to time. So control is our goal. And I think that we have to sit back, reflect on lessons learned, Uh, And we will need undoubtedly to be better prepared for the next pandemic. Um, We won't be able to do that without kickstarting the economy and having money to spend. But we've really got to um, be more secure in our supply chains um, next time. Uh, We've got to sort out that testing scale up. You know, we've got fabulous labs, but we perhaps didn't join them all together as well as we could have done we are short of bed and manpower in the nhs and this is a winter theme it happens every year but when you add in this new virus uh, then you see you see and and i i don't know one one ha- runs out of words really to express our gratitude to uh, the staff who are coping with so many patients such as this and then vaccine and manufacturing capacity. I don't think we've really focused on that in the UK before this. And I think COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 has really, really brought this to the, to the fore and, and a priority. And the vaccine task force are doing their best to deliver that. So I'd like to acknowledge, I mean, I don't know where you start with this, but definitely the participants who took part in all the trials. They are heroes and heroines uh, of the day. Um, and, uh, and and I hope they feel a pleasure in the global partnership they've taken part of. It cannot be done without them. Nor can it be done without the research teams, uh, and you have to include those public health heroes. They're often unsung. Um, they work really, uh, really hard uh, to provide all the necessary uh, support um, in behind. And then the not-for-profit uh, infrastructures that I've mentioned uh, during this talk uh, and none of it can be done without the investment from private donors. Many philanthropic donors uh, dug in their pockets for this um, and, and governments. Uh, so that is the end of my talk. And it is my absolute pleasure to hand over now to, to Mark, who is going to uh, outline the regulatory and legal framework that underpins all of this activity and research and the translation of products from research uh, to clinic. So over to you, Mark.
2: So yes, I'll just say thanks again to Sheena and um, her in, uh, introduction of my response to my, or my reflections on her very thorough, uh, wide-ranging talk today. So I'm gonna speak to this, so safety and effectiveness as paramount concerns of the law in relation to vaccines. I'm gonna do that um, by touching on a few of the key things uh, that Sheena's spoken to. So licensing, clinical trials, and rollout of vaccines uh, for uh, COVID-19. So, I'm just going to speak initially to the question of licensing um, of vaccines Um, and it's important to realise that they're actually licensed as medicinal products, but to reflect upon what that really means, well you can see that in the first bullet point that uh, vaccines are classified as medicinal products under the relevant law applicable within the United Kingdom. Licensing is carried out by the MHRA, there's the insignia there on the right hand side. it's important to realize that as a medicinal product vaccines must fulfill requirements for licensing relating to safety and its efficacy but i'm using a language of effectiveness because it might be more uh, understandable by, by some of the audience at least but also quality and that's also then uh, found within the law itself um just a very brief mention here um that brexit regulations are relevant um but i'm not going to go into those um to any great extent, um, essentially because they don't detract from, and actually they underpin and continue to underpin this uh, focus on safety and effectiveness as the paramount concerns. One key thing to note, and I think perhaps um, it's something that I should stress uh, just to tease it out a bit more, is that UK licences for the COVID vaccines have actually been granted under emergency procedures. They're actually emergency procedures that come from us Uh, via uh, EU law um, and that continue to be part of our law. But these do also ensure safety and effectiveness. Uh, We can see there, in in summary, we can see the focus on safety and effectiveness very apparent here uh, within this particular excerpt from the relevant regulation. So any substance or combination of substances presented as having properties of preventing or treating disease in human beings, or any substance or combinations of substances that may be used by or administered to human beings with a view to, and then it goes on, are classified as medicinal products. So hopefully we can see very clearly that um, uh, safety and efficacy or safety and effectiveness are absolutely central to The licensing of vaccines. Just to move on though, clinical trials are key uh, to licensing. Uh, There won't be a license for a vaccine provided unless there is clinical trials data demonstrating safety and efficacy so that the vaccine is safe and it works. Um, This is, uh, as uh, as Sheena had alluded to the the phases or these are the phases of the clinical trials process and um, things are somewhat different given that the vaccines uh, available and that will become available are being authorized, licensed uh, for use. Um, on the basis of emergency procedures, but essentially now we're somewhere between phase three and phase four, things have been um, reworked somewhat, but the continuing focus throughout is on safety and efficacy, and hopefully that's apparent. You can see that very clearly um, throughout each phase. I'm gonna touch on this a bit more um, later on, so I'll I'll return to this, but um, I just want to stress then um, the importance of safety and effectiveness um, throughout clinical trials and in, 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 indeed includes the safety um, of trial participants. Now, we can see that very clearly noted here in relation to the regulation of clinical trials and, and just in summary the relevant law um, is essentially um, European Union law that is part of or remains part of United Kingdom law. That's summarised here um, there's the relevant piece of UK law mentioned at the very start of the first bullet. The key point to take away um, is the general principle underpinning the law and clinical trials, both here in the UK, but also because many of the clinical trials um, that um, have generated data for the authorisation of these, uh, of these vaccines have been carried out uh, in the European Union or indeed outside the European Union. Um, but the central principle remains and must be be abided by and, and shown to be abided by wherever clinical trials are carried out, and that's essentially found in um, Article 3 of the Clinical Trials Regulation. That That isn't going to be and is not part of UK law, um, but it's also reflected in, in the body of UK law. It's essentially duplicated, and that's the clinical trial may be conducted only if the rights, safety, uh, dignity and well-being of subjects are protected and prevail over all other interests and moreover, it's designed to generate reliable and robust data. This is a requirement here then in the UK, in the European Union, but also beyond. Let's move on then to reflect a little bit further about the sorts of underpinnings um, for the law uh, relating to clinical trials, which, as I've said, in turn provides the basis for the licensing of vaccines as medicinal products. The law reflects international ethics codes and to some extent uh, human rights, but it's actually international ethics codes that are most important in particular because they are referenced in the law itself. Now, there are a number of inter- national ethics codes that are relevant. Um, There's the Nuremberg Code um, and so-called CHOMS guidelines, especially important for the carrying out of clinical trials in developing countries, but more particularly um, the so-called ICH um, uh, requirements for the registration of of pharmaceuticals for human use guidelines. There are a number of different kinds of guidelines. One to flag is that on good clinical practice. Here, safety is key, and that's something that, of course, Gina, um highlighted very clearly in her talk today, but also there's the Helsinki Declaration um, that's provided by uh, or drawn up by the World Medical Association. Now, each of these are actually very clearly embedded in the law and clinical trials. So my talk is probably going a bit quicker than, than planned, but I, I was told to keep it nice and short and sweet. So, um, uh, in the interests of trying to create space for questions, but I just want to move then to rollout and then to make some final or concluding points. Um, and in relation to each of these points, of course, there may be questions and I'm, I'm happy to elaborate. So, of course, Rollout's, rollout, rollout has begun. and um, that's, um, going at pace and it's, um, frankly, amazing success so far. Um, At least um, from my perspective, it's really reassuring to see it it happening. Um, Changes to the movement of vaccines between the EU and the UK, um, and in turn between Great Britain and Northern Ireland have been something that's uh, highlighted in the news recently, um, quite obviously. Um, It's important though not to um, focus too much on the question of Brexit, um, it doesn't actually or or will not actually in the context of vaccines interrupt supply. Um, There's one thing to note that uh, supply is maintained um, through batch testing essentially. Um, but ensuring that batch testing can um, be carried out either, um, for instance, in the European Economic Area, that uh, comprises most, mostly the European Union, um, or um, in Great Britain, um, but not in necessarily in Northern Ireland itself. So that helps to cut out some some, um, if I call it red tape. Although it's all very important stuff. Um, this red tape. It's it's about trying to ensure. Uh, safety. Um, but still, Brexit is something to think about, but it's not interrupting supply supply continues. Um, the UK government, this is another point, has decided to indemnify vaccine producers against liability for arms caused to patients. Um, this has been highlighted to me quite recently as a concern. Um, um, and actually as a concern that might underpin hesitancy in relation to actually getting vaccinated. But this is actually um, a common, uh, or the indemnification is actually um, a common approach adopted by the UK government. It's in the interest of trying to ensure rollout of vaccines for uh, uh Illnesses, um, there are really big public health concerns and trying to do that as quickly as possible while maintaining safety. So a similar approach has been adopted in relation to, say, HPV, meningitis B and H1N1, which is perhaps a, uh, perhaps the most direct analogy to, um, to the COVID-19, um, virus. Um, but it's important to note that although the UK government is indemnifying vaccine producers, that those patients that actually do suffer some sort of harm as a consequence of the vaccine, and we anticipate that the numbers will be very, very low, and, and, the, and the literature, as Sheena highlights, um, really does underline that. The people that do actually suffer harm um, do or are, or are potentially able to access compensation via the Vaccine Damage pay, Payment Scheme. In terms of the safety of vaccine, bearing in mind um, that they have been, or the, the vaccines are being authorised um, under emergency procedures, um, safety is going to be kept under review by the MHRA, um, in, in particular because we've moved essentially into phase four because we're in post-licensing now. But there's more data being generated all the time to provide a complete, or more complete picture of um, safety and efficacy of these vaccines and of course safety above all really. Um, Licensing though important to stress remains conditional upon this continual demonstration of safety through provision of additional data as it becomes available post-licensing so as it is generated. So I just want to conclude by underlining the key point at least from or the key points from a legal perspective Safety um, and efficacy, effectiveness, what I've been calling effectiveness, are paramount concerns of the law relating to vaccines. This is found in a number of ways, um, in particular the conditions for licensing vaccines at all, Um, but in turn it's important to remember that vaccines are licensed only if clinical trials data demonstrates their safety and effectiveness. Clinical trials must be performed in ways that protect trial participants and generate data that demonstrates safety and effectiveness for patients. And further data is being gathered and must be gathered to demonstrate the benefits of, of the vaccine outweigh, outweigh uh, any potential risks. And that ultimately, of course, as I've been saying, safety and effectiveness are assured. So I think those are the key points I'd like to tease out from, from Sheena's talk. And es- essentially then, these are the key concerns that underpin uh, the law on, on this whole area of vaccination, um, the licensing, their development, the whole research process, and uh, the rollout and beyond. So uh, thanks so much for your attention. And thanks again um, to Sheena for, for her talk today.
3: Thank you very much, Mark. Um, Can I thank both Sheena and Mark for their interesting and wide ranging contributions? Really helpful um, and I hope informative for those who are watching and listening today. Um, Can I say at the outset that um, a recording of the event will be available afterwards. So if you're having any problems with your connection, you'll be able to catch up afterwards and please do share the event as well with colleagues, um, family and friends, that would be good to get as wide a reach as possible. Um, Just to introduce myself, my name is Anne Watts. I'm the director of Pivotal, which is an independent public policy think tank in Northern Ireland. Um, And I'm delighted to have been invited by Queen's University to help post the Q&A today. So thank you for your questions to those of you who have already contributed questions. So um, I'm just going to kick off with some questions for uh, I think probably Sheena in the first instance. Um, There was a question about what percentage of the Northern Ireland population will take up the vaccine, what do we expect? Now, I don't know whether you know that for Northern Ireland, but I think it would be interesting for people to hear what is the expectation amongst the experts about what the take up will be in the population generally, and how does that contribute
1: towards um, herd immunity? Um, so I guess the simple answer is I don't know, <laughs> um, uh, what the proportion of the Northern Ireland population will be. And I'm sorry, I, I would have thought if I was going to look that up, I would see, um, what proportion of the Northern Ireland population, um, had the flu vaccine, you know, because that's offered every, every year. I think that would be a helpful pointer. Um, I think, having worked with um, MHRA's Clinical Research Practice database, my understanding in the UK, uh, in, in England, in GP practices in England, it's around about 60% for flu, and the incentive to access this vaccine seems much higher, particularly amongst the the, the elderly. Um, I haven't, again, looked in detail at the mathematical models. Uh, and really, the modellers, well, I, I always think it's, it's difficult with any one mathematical modelling um, study. What's really reassuring is when all the modellers come together and get behind a, a number, if they, are, um, if they are in consensus about the threshold you need. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, Neil Ferguson on the radio today was saying 20% is not enough, and I would agree with that. I think some models have suggested if we can get to 40% immunity, that would be good. So I think if we can achieve 60% or more of vaccine coverage, we will be on our way. Um, But uh, I wouldn't like to put a figure on that with confidence, Anne.
3: Thank you, Sheena. And just want to kick off for for Mark then. Um, A question, um, if all the safety and efficacy standards um, were respected in the trials, what was the rationale for changing regulations to allow for Emergency approval, why was that emergency regulation needed if the standards were all met?
2: Right, well, um, hopefully, oh yeah, I can see that I'm up. Um, sorry, I've got a technical problem this end. Um, well, the short answer is that their regulations haven't been changed. Uh, there's been an emergency procedure for probably as long as there's been a centralised European Union law on this question. Um, so that's for getting on 20 years, 16 or, or, more, or more years at least. Um, so there hasn't been an introduction of an emergency procedure. The procedure was already part of the law. It's part of the law in the United Kingdom, and that's as a consequence of European Union law that the United Kingdom helped to design. Um, The European Union uh, was actually, or or rather the UK was actually a champion of this within the European Union when it was a member. This procedure is also in place elsewhere um, in Europe, so in the European Union, and that includes European economic area countries such as Norway. But there's also an emergency procedure in place in uh, other uh, regimes, other jurisdictions, such as um, the Food and Drug Administration, um, in the United States, uh, Canada, uh, the relevant regulator there, Australia, Singapore, and so on. So this is very much part of the regulatory architecture for the uh, licensing, the market authorization, in other words, of vaccines or indeed other any other kind of medicinal product. And what the uh, emergency procedure is essentially um, aimed at doing is ensuring that when we're faced with an emergency, an acute public health concern, problem, like this pandemic, um, we're lucky not to have had, um, say, H1N1, um, like, was that back in 2009, become a pandemic, um, on this scale. Um, Indeed, uh, Ebola. Um, But this is what we're facing now, Covid-19. We have the emergency procedures in place to ensure that there is uh, available as soon as possible, vaccines to, uh, to deal with it, to try and help prevent infection. Um, so this is about trying to ensure that the vaccines are available as fast as possible, um, but without compromising safety. So just to go into the, into the detail a, a bit more, um, uh, what essentially happens, and this is my understanding, is that the review processes are carried out um, more speedily That isn't because shortcuts are being made, it's because there is more intense focus and attention on this particular issue on the vaccines that are coming forward and being presented to the regulators for potential licensing, right? So um, there's a reprioritization of the work of the regulators so that they focus on vaccines. That's what the emergency procedure is about. It's not about reducing standards, not, not about watering them down. And as I mentioned, um, authorization under the emergency procedure is actually conditional. So what that means is that there's a requirement for more data to be provided by um, the manufacturers of vaccines um, as it becomes available so that the regulators can look at it to ensure that not just efficacy is maintained, but the safety is maintained as well. So hopefully that responds adequately.
3: That's really helpful, Mark. I think you, you're saying clearly there that it's going through the, it's going through the same procedures, but it's a, given a greater priority, more resource within the yeah. within the regulators. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
4: yeah. Th-
3: there's a number of questions here for about um, immunocompromised individuals. So I think these are for Sheena. Any concerns about vaccinating immunocompromised individuals? And um, what are Sheena's thoughts on the benefits or protection levels for immunosuppressed patients and clinically extremely vulnerable people?
1: So I, I guess that the, the main concern there is that they may not make such good responses um, and uh, it becomes a, a real unknown there. As I mentioned uh, you know, in the talk, <coughs> we're looking forward equally, eagerly to hearing what the threshold of immunity uh, required is. Um, it, it may indeed prove to, to be quite low. And certainly, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, absolutely sure of the recent data, of the most up-to-date data, but for hepatitis B, um, I'm not sure if there have been any cases of liver cancer reported in people who are vaccinated. So one of the goals in terms of severe disease of the hepatitis B vaccination campaign is to um, prevent liver cancer, uh, obviously to prevent the infection itself, but to prevent uh, long-term side effects, uh, long-term uh, toxicity uh, from Hep B. Um, and, and, and so for quite a while, it was felt that even though you couldn't measure, we couldn't measure immune responses, there might still be some clinical protection. And only time is going to to tell us that. Uh, I don't have concerns about the the license vaccines being given to people who are immunocompromised. They would not be contraindicated. If there was an issue there, then MHRA would uh, and the regulators would tell us that. Uh, So I think no problem in terms of uh, safety, um, uh, but the effectiveness is questionable and that would have to be monitored and time will tell.
3: Um, And another one for you, Sheena, so... Was um was scientific evidence presented to support the government strategy of mixing and matching the vaccine and extending the time scales between doses? Now you, you certainly talked a bit about this. Um so uh that's this has been in the media a lot and it's obviously a mm. very real issue in, in people's lives at the minute. Uh, healthcare workers who have had one dose and were expecting the second in a few weeks and mm. have been told that's being postponed. So um, what is the evidence to support that uh, mixing and matching the vaccines and also extending the period between the
1: doses so certainly that that's uh, that's been looked at in the preclinical space and is being looked at in the clinical space but there is some there is already some clinical evidence that you can combine the, the different uh, vaccines I don't know exactly what um, what the, what they what they reviewed and um, they do get advanced um, look at at data that's not always in the public domain. But I have friends who are currently, you know, took part in the um, AstraZeneca in the states who are now having the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine to see uh, what happens. So I I know this is very much underway, this work, to to assess the the meaning of it. But all along, we have anticipated the need for a boosting strategy, um, such as we have for flu, uh, where we roll out a different vaccine uh, each each year. Um, And so I don't have any undue concerns uh, about, about this. Um, perhaps Anne to add to that because you know that I forgot to say thank you at the end of my uh, talk to the regulators and the ethics committees who've reviewed all of Mm -hmm. these studies. They've done done an outstanding Mm -hmm. job and I know the MHRA has been inspecting um, uh, both Oxford's trial and and the one that I've been involved with at Imperial right from the beginning in order to be prepared for for rapid review. So they have done a great job to prepare for for the rapid authorisation. Um, uh, but uh, but we will wait and see what comes in in, in that space. As the vaccines are using and modelling, the actual bit of the vaccine that's modelling COVID-19 is very similar in all of them. I don't anticipate a problem from this next thing.
3: Okay, thank you, Sheena. Most people, when they submit their questions, are putting them in anonymously, but we have a few names. So thank you, Clara, for your question. Um, uh, question, I think, to start with, start with Mark on this one. Do you feel there's a need Sorry, do you feel there's a case for a mandatory vaccine policy in the instance of this global health emergency? If so, what in what form of that would be ethically justifiable?
2: So that's a big question. That's a huge question, right? And it's um it's very welcome. Um it's one that I've been thinking about. Um but I I I don't think um by the UK's de facto bioethics council, the Nuffield Council. As de facto, it's not. You know, it's not officially the, the, the ethics council of the UK, um, or perhaps just England. Um, but um, yeah, I don't think that mandatory vaccination is justified. Um, it's certainly not something um, that. I, as far as I can tell, um, has gained much traction within the legal and, uh, or rather ethics literature. Uh, I think moreover, um, if we uh, refer back to Sheena's talk. um, So if we look at the evidence and try to actually just think and reflect um, what it is that vaccination is trying to achieve. So I I might be, Uh, kind of to um, I I might be summarising some of what Sheena said without sophistication so apologies to Sheena Um, you may wish to correct me Um, but as far as I can uh, understand um, from Sheena's talk but also from what I've read uh, we need to reach a certain level of immunity in the population so herd herd immunity but as far as we can tell um, that there are Uh, Willingness to be vaccinated against COVID-19 is at such a level that it's likely that herd herd immunity uh, will be achieved. So there isn't, when we take, I think we just take that as a really important piece of information. Um, There isn't really, I I don't think, when we look at the, uh, the evidence or what's likely to happen, Um, It seems likely that there will be a massive uptake of the vaccines because of that, I don't think, or at least that's part of the the reasoning, Um, because of that, in large part, mandatory vaccination could not, in my view, be justified. Um, There are lots of other things to think about in terms of um, vaccination. Um, Consent requirements, right? Um, Consent um, to any sort of intervention. um, consent more broadly. Um, consent's really important um, in our society or our societies um, ac- across uh, these islands and further afield, and it's something that we shouldn't uh, look to trade away lightly. Um, Uh, on the basis of um, the goal of, say, protecting public health more widely, and that's something that I underscored when we look at the law, the legal instruments, but also the ethical frameworks that underpin them, you can see that the individual isn't to be um, overridden in in the name of society um, or societal protection, public health protection more generally. But going back to, as I say, the evidence, it doesn't really seem that... uh, Achieving herd immunity, the, the, the main goal of vaccination is going to be a problem because take up is likely um, to allow us to reach that level. And so I think that's the, that's my main point in response. Um, I, I can't see that mandatory vaccination is something that is warranted. And I, I'll say one more thing, if I may. Sorry, um, if I'm taking up too much time, but I think it, I can understand where. One might be coming from in thinking, well, why don't we just have mandatory vaccination? <laughs> why not, um, or, or shouldn't we? And these sorts of questions, right? But um, as I've said, um, although we are living through a period that um, is unparalleled in our lifetimes and for an awful long time, um, and it's causing a lot of hardship for for all of us, really, but some people, it has to be said, far more than others. Um, still um, I think we're likely achieve, uh, to achieve our public health goals um, on the basis of, of voluntary take-up of the vaccines. So thank you. Great. Thank, thank you, Mark.
3: Sheena, um, do you want
1: to make any comment on that one? Yeah, no. I uh, Just to say I completely agree with Mark. I think consent should be protected. I, I don't feel it will be necessary um, I had a quick look <laughs> to see what JCVI said about coverage, and they just say good, um, so not behind, <laughs> but they're keeping a close eye on it. And and I, I will, I'm sure that won't be necessary. I'd feel most uncomfortable. We've been in this space around HIV for other things. We don't have a vaccine that works, but we have other things that do work. And it's never it's never helpful for doing things in partnership with uh, with the public. So yeah, I agree with Mark completely.
3: I think, um, you know, throughout, throughout COVID, we've seen really starkly the um, balance between the need to protect public health, but then also um, individuals' rights and individuals' personal decision making about their own protection. How do you see that balance between public health, the public health imperative and personal protection working itself out in this vaccination programme? Mark, do you want to talk about that?
2: Um, I, th- I thought you might come back to me on this. Um, um, so what do I think? Um, I think that in terms of the vaccination programme, so that's the parameter um, that you've set, I think uh, that, um, so going back to the question of mandatory vaccination, or actually, in maintaining voluntary vaccination um, and uh, a policy of voluntariness, I think that allows us to achieve an appropriate balance between protecting the public health as a whole um, while maintaining, at the same time, individual rights. Um, so here, um, consent. So this—it's really just um, the, an expression of individual autonomy. The, the individual um, just being able to make a decision for herself, or himself, or themselves. Themselves um, and that being protected and respected. Um, I don't think that there is through uh, adhering to maintaining consent um, and that, that as an expression of individual autonomy. I don't think that we are compromising um, public health. And I spaced something further. as It's coming to me as I'm as I'm thinking this through. I don't think. And I'm not saying that I don't want to suggest that that's what you put to me, some sort of public health or you know the individual. Um, but I think um, it's something worthwhile to think about. I don't think it's either one or the other. Um, I think it's there's a balancing exercise that has to be undertaken, and that's very much um, central to what like, legal thinking, especially as informed by human rights, but also uh, in ethics. Um, so it's not. All or, all or nothing, right? It's not all one side um, or the other. It, it's actually a bouncing exercise. Thanks, Mark. Do you
3: want to add anything to that, Sheena, about the balance
1: between public health and personal protection? I, I think, uh, only to say that I'm very glad I'm not a politician. <laughs> I think its a re- it's been such a difficult uh, tightrope to tread, hasn't it? And at times, for sure, a large proportion of the population have felt their rights have been infringed by the restrictions that have been placed on them, and that is to protect uh, public health. But at the same time, people can see that it's detrimental to the economy. So this is very, very tricky, and the politicians have a difficult job to, to, to do they're looking not only at the science but they're looking at all of the um, other pieces as, as well uh, because we you know we can't improve anything without a, a thriving economy so I, I i don't envy them at all Anne. i think it's a very tricky uh, balance but with respect to the to the vaccination and 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 that side of things i i think the public i think everyone's together in this and we all see that that's an essential component to getting back to near normal. So there the feels like a tremendous enthusiasm when you see the clips on telly and here in the news. I, I feel it's, it's a good feeling as opposed to that, that um, fighting back against the restrictions that many people um, have done.
3: I want to get on to some other questions that we've had, but Mark, I think you want to come back just quickly on that.
2: Yes, just very quickly. Um, so I was just thinking, um, it's actually, you know, this is in response to, to Sheena, um, what Sheena was just saying. So this is very much, um, a dialogue in some senses, although we're not in the same room. <laughs> it's kind of hard to realize that there's a dialogue going on, I think. Um, but I just wanted to, to speak to, um, the core of, of really what Sheena was saying there. And, um, I, I think there's something really important to think about in terms of, there are tools available to deal with this pandemic. So we've got, well, these days we're told to wear a mask quite rightly because the evidence does show that mask wearing is very, very important. It, it actually works, or it just seems to work. Um, but also social distancing, hand washing, all of those sorts of things. Um, now, I think um, what we've seen is, uh, at least lately, um, a growing tendency among some parts of the population, some sectors of the population, to uh, refuse to wear masks, um, not to abide by social distance, so, so, so on and so forth. Um, I think if we were, so this is going back to um, the question about manda- mandatory vaccination. I think if um, if there were to be mandatory vaccination, and again, I don't think anyone seriously proposes that, um, It would undermine the overall effort or could potentially undermine the overall effort, the efficacy, if we like, of the other tools that are in place. Um, And we have to bear in mind also that um, law, um, um, so so where there is legal backing for these different kinds of tools, um, or even if we've just got these tools and there isn't legal backing, but there's a strong... Um, focus on these tools and, and trying to make sure that they are implemented, they're, they're only going to be effective really if um, people are um, wearing masks, say, or um, effectively social distancing or distancing themselves socially. Um, and if they are not, if there is enforcement um, possible. Um, but then there's a the question of who's going to enforce? Um, how are we possibly going to a- a- achieve that? It's going to be very, very hard to achieve that. Police forces, um, <laughs> authorities say it's really hard to enforce the rules as they are. So we have to be really careful um, about um, trying to ensure that um, there's an optimal, and I say optimal, response so that most people, hopefully um, nearly all people actually do abide by the rules, whether they have a legal backing or not. But um, going back then to vaccination, um, mandatory vaccination, I think, in some people's minds would actually um, uh, give them a a, a sense of being justified, perhaps, um, or provide some sort of grounds upon which they can then say, well, I'm not abiding by any of this, um, because, well, they feel forced, coerced, um, and they maybe haven't been given the information, um, to, or they've been given misinformation to fuel um, their particular response. So, thank you.
3: Okay, thank you, Mark and Gina, for that. Um, just a really practical, real world question here from Charlene um, regarding members of the public, and there might be family or friends, people we know, that doubt the need for a vaccine or believe in conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. What would you say in terms of advice and how to convince them or educate them? Gina, that's one for you, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it is, it's tricky, isn't it? All that stuff on social media platforms can be quite uh, convincing um, uh, when you when you read it. Um, but it's a long, long, long history of the role of vaccination in control of infectious disease that, that, that comes on the side of the, of the need through a vaccine to control an infectious disease. Um, and the reason um, it's doing it is by uh, reducing the infection in the community. So truly at that community level. And, and this is what we, we do need to, to, to get to in order for um, everybody to, uh, to be protected. So you may not be doing it for yourself because the risks seem low, but you're doing it for other people. Now, if you have a really strong concern, then I would like to think there are there is your your own doctor. <laughs> there are many people who you can speak to, to to seek reassurance. But right now, the stuff on mainstream media is, is as up-to-date as the scientific journals and is made very digestible for us um, by people who are good at translating um, into language that makes sense. Um, I don't know if that helps, Anne. I, I find that if you really... Uh, you know, when you're talking to individuals, sometimes a very, very firmly, firmly held belief is hard to unstick. Mm. And, and and sometimes you can't resolve that at an individual level. But I've been impressed by the information in mainstream media um, mm. and how clear it is. So, mm. uh, Mark, do you want to comment on that one? Yeah, um, I mean, just to try
2: and add something um to see what Sheena said. I think um, I, I can't um, i don't want to put words in sheena's mouth um but uh both sheena and i and our colleagues um are all academics and we're all um trying to uh ensure um one version of our job or part of our job is, is to ensure um, that there is some sort of truth out there and that, that um, there is a sound basis for um, uh, decisions that are taken by lawmakers, uh, by the, so that's legislators in particular, um, by the regulators, um, that but moreover, what we're interested in um, is ensuring, well, at least from a legal perspective, we're interested in, in ensuring accountability, um, where decisions haven't been taken on, a, on the basis of sound evidence, for instance. But at this moment, we cannot see um, those working in this area, um, especially... In the legal and regulatory studies field, we can't see a basis on which to critique the decisions being made. They are being made um, in in accordance with and under the law, the regulatory frameworks that are in place. And again, they are about trying to ensure safety. Um, I think perhaps safety above all course effectiveness, but safety. Um, so, if there were um, something to be concerned about, I imagine there'd be people such as Sheena, but then also people um, in the social sciences like myself who would be performing um, a critique, who would be m- making known our concerns. And um, we're, where, well, at least I, I'm, I, I'm pretty good at, at saying what I think. <laughs> um, it's, it's part of the job, right? So, if there were a problem, if there were a concern you would hear about it from the academics. We're independent of government of regulators. It's part of our job.
3: Thank you both for that. Now, just to move on to there are a number of questions about groups who were not included in the trials and what um, the vaccination might mean for them. So the first one I want to ask you about is pregnant women. So that pregnant women are not included in the trials, as, as far as I know. Um, what are the main concerns about the effectiveness and safety of the vaccine?
1: For a pregnant women? So um, they, it's, you're absolutely right, Anne, and that's standard practice that um, uh, you would not include pregnant women at the beginning um, or, or children. Um, so you work your way into those communities. And I know there are trials going on now um, uh, looking at the safety of vaccine in, in pregnant women and uh, you can do quite a lot before you go to the trials in terms of looking at the the safety um, in, in animals that are pregnant. And everything has been very reassuring uh, to date and has to be in order for the regulators to approve those trials to go forward in pregnant women. So we have some reassurance from those data, but at the end of the day, we, we want to collect the, the clinical data and uh, extend enormous thanks to those pregnant women who are volunteering to take part um, in, in the trials. Mm-hmm. And what you would do typically is start at the end of pregnancy um, when there will be less risk if there, there are adverse reactions um, because the baby's you know, obviously almost completely grown and then work your way back through, through to the early pregnancy. But probably the, the, the greatest risks, I think from any drugs come in that first third of pregnancy um, and, uh, and whether we will get to that stage or not, I'm I am not sure. One would hope, obviously, if we managed to get control of the epidemic, that just through taking uh, some measures of precaution, um, the, the population risk would drop, and then, then women would not need to be vaccinated in that trimester of pregnancy. They would get vaccinated before they get pregnant, et cetera. Um, so that's where we are. They're looking now.
3: And you mentioned children as well, Sheena, in that answer, so there's no... Plan to vaccinate children, but um, you know those of those of us who are our parents will know that our children do get a flu vaccination every year. So,
1: how is that likely to progress over time? So that also progresses. They look back down the age groups. So I think you're you're pretty confident in the safety down to twelve year olds um, based on the adult data, and then below that you would want to look um, in the younger age groups. But I think there's quite a debate about the role that children play in in transmission. I feel at the moment the consensus is that children in secondary school uh, play an important role. And and then just more recently, I've seen some things in in the literature suggesting, or the media again, suggesting that actually maybe uh, younger children also play a role in, in, in transmission. Um, But once more, if we can get to that magic level in the community, that means we've got the rate, the reproduction rate of the virus down really low. It shouldn't be necessary to to go to those age groups. And I I can't I don't have a a crystal ball, but my I imagine the booster strategy is also going to focus on people in the older age groups at risk of severe disease rather than the entire population, the more big population.
3: Okay, I'm getting towards the end of our time here. Can I just say thank you very much to everyone who submitted questions. It's been really great to have your participation and hopefully to address the topics that you're interested in. Um, Again, a a practical question. Is there a place for vaccination passports? Mark? Oh, Oh, sorry, Sheena.
1: Sheena, you (laughs) go first. I'm dying to hear what Mark's got to say. (laughs)
2: Um, I I don't necessarily um, have a... Clear answer to that question um, vaccination passports i think so, so, so this is a uh, just an initial response i 'd have to think about this in more depth, uh, but my initial response is something like um, the following: I tend to think that if I understand the premise of the vaccination passport, it's to facilitate uh movement of people, right, to say, I've been vaccinated, so it's safe for me to travel around. I think that's the idea, right? Um, okay. Um, or, uh, presumably, um, I suppose there's some questions to ask in my initial response, then, I mean, would they be voluntary or mandatory? Um there's a big question there. I, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the discussion around vaccination passports to really know where things stand in terms of what, what might be being discussed or what could even be then proposed. Um, but are they voluntary or, or is the idea that, that they would be voluntary or mandatory? If they were mandatory, I'd start to have big concerns around them and that they effectively go to questions around then, um, what I've, or what we've um, spoken about, what we've discussed before, which relates to um, mandatory vaccination, so it makes me uneasy. Um, having if, in if fact, they, if they were to be mandatory, but I mean, Sheena's raising her her hand. Maybe she knows more about this um, issue than I do. I think um, if I, d- I d- just say this, um, I tend to think that actually um, just sticking to the guidance, not looking for shortcuts, um, wanting to travel. Um, unnecessarily I think that's the safest option and it's I could be wrong but it sounds to me like vaccination passports again if I understand the premise correctly is a way of just trying to um, find ways around the rules that everyone else is living under
3: Um, so I'll pass it over to Sheena Sheena do you want to comment on vaccination passports?
1: Not necessarily an answer to COVID-19 but speaking from the yellow fever um experience, uh, mm-hmm. because I carried one of those with me, a little yellow fever vaccination card for years because you really? couldn't go to East Africa producing it. Um and indeed even if you went through East Africa onto South Africa and you arrived without it and said you'd been through, you know, Tanzania or Uganda, um, then you would be sent off to the uh, health service and you would be vaccinated. <laughs> so it's not exactly a, a mandatory passport in a way, but you couldn't get in. Uh, I couldn't get into South Africa without going to be vaccinated. And and yellow fevers are live um, in a viral vector, so it carries considerably more risk than um, than the, the vaccines we're looking at at the moment. And um, uh, the, the lady I was traveling with, uh, was on steroids and was very immunosuppressed, and she said, "I can't have this this virus, uh, this vaccine." And I and, and I was able to prevent her from from being vaccinated. Um, so that wasn't mandatory in in that sense. But as I say, the pathway for South Africa for me was that I hadn't got my bit of paper, and I had to go and have uh, another yellow fever jab. But this is kept under surveillance the whole time, and I think that's probably an example where we reached a point. Where the harms from these repeat vaccinations with yellow fever outweighed, you know, the, the benefits in terms of uh, risk being introduced to other countries. And I think that's changed. So I think there's a history here, Mark and Anne, that we could, we could look at, but uh, it's fascinating. And I, I do see those passports more as being permission for you to come into my country. Um, especially if you're coming from a country like ours, which has had such high rates of infection.
3: Great, thank you. I'm just going to ask one final question and then hand over to uh, Stuart, who's going to round up. So for a very quick answer, a very short answer, just say 30 to 60 seconds, from all your learning and experience of recent months and um, uh, COVID and the development of vaccines, what would be your one big policy message for the government for the future? Sheena, start with you.
1: Whoa. (laughs) I'd say build that capacity. So whatever it takes, make sure we're not in this space without the bed and manpower capacity in, in hospitals to cope with the future pandemic. And please ensure we've got a manufacturing base um there are so many things governments done well there are so many things all the partners have done well but those are those are areas make sure we can scale up the testing make sure we've got the manpower to cope with the surge um and please have the manufacturing base close to hand i guess those would be my three things i'd ask for
3: great thank you sheena mark what would be your big message for the government from your learning of recent times.
2: I agree entirely with um, what Sheena has just said. Um, I think um, to try to add to what Sheena said, the thing that has really struck me the most is that there is a dire need for government to respond as quickly as possible. I think it's it's borne out very clearly um, in what's happened over the last year and especially just over the last two months that government uh, responds far too slowly. And uh, we see uh, what happens um, as a consequence of um, slow action. Um, so that's, that's all I want to say.
3: Great. Thank you very much, Sheena and Mark, for taking all those questions, which really were uh, many and varied. So thank you for being so quick and agile to respond to different topics there. Um, and thank you to all of those watching and listening who submitted questions that really helped to add Um, extra flavour and interest to the event. So thank you for your participation in that. I'm um, just going to hand over now to Professor Stuart Elwin from Queen's University, who will round up the event.
4: Thank you very much, Anne, and uh, thank you to both Sheena and Mark. We've been privileged uh, over this lunchtime to uh, hear two individuals at the top of their game, really at the business end of, of the challenges that we're facing during this pandemic. And I want to thank them both. Uh, enormously for their contribution in their talks and and in their responses uh, to the questions, which I think were really helpful and enlightening. I also want to thank Sheena for uh, her and her team who are working hard to to help with further vaccine programs. Uh, And uh, as uh, is often said, this is not going to be over for some time and we need to keep the enthusiasm in the uh, academic arenas uh, and in the health service to to really make sure we come through this as a society, I think one of the interesting areas of questions that we've explored is is the the social contract uh, and the role of legislation versus uh, bringing the community with us. Uh, and I think the pandemic has has really brought together uh, wide disciplines that need to work together for the good of society. Uh, We need need the science, we need the medicine, but there are also challenges around how we implement, how do we uh, educate, uh, how do we encourage society uh, in behaviours which are good for them and good for each other. And there are many challenges that that still face us around all of those issues. But I think this has been an opportunity to hear uh, some some really strong evidence and have some really engaged discussions, which I hope helps you uh, in your thinking uh, around this, this challenging area. Finally, just to thank Anne for chairing. Uh, I, it was uh, an excellent, excellent questions and excellent flow during that time. And also to uh, Gordon, Morris and Aileen for their uh, support and backup uh, to make this uh, uh, Zoom uh, work so smoothly. Uh, and finally, to thank you as the audience for, uh, for joining us. Thank you for participating. Uh, There is uh, a regular series of these uh, uh, events over the next number of months, some of which will have uh, uh, COVID relationships but also in other important areas uh, around social policy, politics uh, and other important areas that challenge us uh, as a society. Finally just to remind you there is a recording uh, that you can pick up uh, and share hopefully with uh, friends and colleagues uh, and uh, we hope that will be So thank you very much uh, and uh, I hope the rest of your day goes well. Uh, The rain has stopped in Northern Ireland, uh, the sun has come out uh, and hopefully uh, the the future for us as a society will be uh, coming out of this uh, uh, stronger, uh, more engaged with each other, more committed to uh, uh, looking after and supporting each other uh, through difficult times. So thank you and I hope you have a, a good rest of your day. Goodbye.
0: For more in this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast's Shaping a Better World podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.